this morning's reading is from Esther chapter 8 to chapter 9, verse 4. Uh, you can follow the reading in today's uh, bulletin. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it's the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadeta the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and, then have, uh, and they have impaled him on the pole he set up. Now write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. At once, the royal secretaries were summoned. On the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan, they wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors, and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all provinces of King Circes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the Edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers, riding the royal horses, went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness amongst the Jews, with feasting and celebrating. 
And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one can stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces and he became more and more powerful. Uh, well, friends, we've almost made it. Uh, we are almost at the end of the book of Esther. Over these past six weeks, we've been patiently making our way through this story, uh, tracing how the drama unfolds. And our passage this morning, really, it begins the ending of the story. If you see, last week, if you were here, you'll remember we hit the kind of big climax of the story. Uh, so much of the tension that was building up resolved last week at the high point of the drama. Uh, we said it was the turning point of the entire book of Esther, uh, where God overturns the enemy's plans uh, to kill Mordecai. He turned it on its head. He reversed the positions of Mordecai and Haman. And well, what we find here in our passage this morning is how that reversal now extends to all of God's people. You see, that's what we have here in chapter 8 and the start of 9. God brings reversal for his people, a reversal for all his people. And what we're going to do this morning, we'll spend our time basically looking at what this reversal is like. You see, as it's described in this chapter, it is a complete reversal. You'll notice it even as Rebecca read through the passage. It's a total turnaround for God's people. And yet, as we try to understand this reversal in the story of Esther, as we start to try to make the link as to how it connects with our experience as Christian believers, uh, we first got to see how it connects with the rest of the Bible. Because this reversal here, it's actually a specific reversal. It comes at a particular point in time, a specific point in God's plan to rescue his people. It's a specific reversal. So we need to understand that. But as we do that, now what we get to see is actually how and why it's relevant for us. Because the reversal that's pictured here well, it points us to a future reversal. You see, in fact, our passage this morning, what it does is it confronts us with a reality. It confronts each of us with a future reality. It comes with a real challenge as we look through this passage. But if we're willing to go into that challenge, what we find is that there is, in fact, real hope. Hope of reversal. A future reversal for all of God's people. God brings reversal for his people. And so with that in mind, why don't we jump in then and look at how this reversal is a complete reversal. And we'll start by skipping down actually to chapter 9, verse 1. Uh, in the middle of that verse there, on this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. Uh, this verse really, it stands as a great summary of everything that we see happen in this chapter. In fact, in some ways, it encapsulates the whole of what God's people experienced. Literally, it's what was going to happen to them was reversed, was overturned, turned back on itself. Uh, God brings complete reversal for God's people. 
And as we follow the action through from the start of chapter 8, then we see how it comes about. It starts with Mordecai, and then it extends to the rest of God's people. You see, it starts with Mordecai. Chapter 8, verse 1. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king. For Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. You see, our passage here flows right out of what we looked at last week. Uh, everything that happens here, it happens on that same day. Perhaps you'll remember how last week in our passage, everything happened in such a short space of time. That God overturned the enemy's plan overnight, all in that one day. Uh, the night that the king could not sleep. That morning, Haman wanted to persuade the king to kill Mordecai. Uh, maybe later that morning, later that afternoon, Haman was seen parading Mordecai through the streets, giving him honor. Maybe it was that evening that he was whisked away back to Esther's second banquet when he was exposed for who he was. Maybe later that evening, Haman was impaled on the pole that he had set up for Mordecai. All of that happened in one day. And well, that same day, Mordecai now receives that signet ring, that symbol of authority that once belonged to Haman, now belongs to Mordecai. He set over the house of Haman, all that wealth and power that Haman had, well, now that's given to Mordecai. You see, that reversal is complete. The tables were turned for Mordecai. And if you think about that, uh, <laughs> that meme that you often see, how it's going, or how it started, sorry, and how it's going. I mean, how did it start for Mordecai that day? He was going to be killed. It couldn't get any worse for Mordecai. But how is it going? Well, somehow he is now the second most powerful person in the kingdom of Persia. It's a complete reversal. That's where it starts. But it's not over yet. Uh, Esther recognizes what's at stake. Verse 3. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. See, it's not over yet. In some ways, the big drama all happened last week. And so now it kind of feels like a bit of a report. But, but the drama actually continues. Uh, the tension is still there. You see, God had overturned the enemy's plan against Mordecai. But the enemy's plan against all of God's people, well, that still stood. This edict of judgment was still in force. And so it wasn't over yet. That reversal needs to extend now to all of God's people. So that's what we're seeing here in this passage. And so Esther pleads their case. Verse 5, if it pleases the king, if he regards me with favor, if he thinks it's the right thing to do, if he's pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. She goes for it. And she's all in here. She is fully committed to the cause of her people. She recognizes their plight. She identifies with them in their need. How can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? She aligns herself with God's people in their need as they stand under this edict of destruction. But of course what we find is that this law can't just be revoked. Uh, at the end of verse 8 there, you see the king says, no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. Uh, maybe a matter of legal precedent. Uh, the things that have already been put in force, they, they keep standing. Or maybe it's to do with uh, personal pride. 
that the king can't bring himself to admit that one decree that he signed off on uh, wasn't right. Uh, either way, the only option that's open to them is to write a new decree. Uh, verse 8 again at the start. Write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews. Seal it with the king's signet ring. And so what follows is really quite a masterpiece. You see, this new decree that's written, it overturns everything that Haman had worked for. Uh, seriously, if you hold out chapter 3 in your Bibles alongside chapter 8, you'll see the similarities. It's as if someone has taken chapter 3, pressed copy, and then pasted it in chapter 8. Now, of course, we know in our work lives, if you were to do that, that you know, you're not allowed to do that. That's plagiarism. You can't just copy someone else's work and change some of the details. And yet what we find here is not plagiarism. This is God at work, overturning the enemy's plan. Uh, you see it as you go through the writing of this decree. See, back in chapter 3, you'll remember the royal secretaries were all summoned. They were going to write something that was going to be written in every language of the province. It was going to go out to everyone, uh, all according to Haman's orders, uh, written in the name of the king, sealed with his signaling, sent out by couriers. And then fast forward to chapter 8, verse 9. Once again, we see the royal secretary summoned. They're writing something that will go out in every language, except what are they writing to now? Not according to Haman's orders. No, according to Mordecai's orders. Once again, written in the name of the king, signed, sealed with the king's ring, verse 10. Sent out by couriers with this extra detail, which I like. These ones rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. This was special mail delivery. It was going to go out even quicker. A total turnaround from what we found back in chapter 3. Uh, you see it in the edict itself. See, back in chapter 3, uh, Haman's edict, you remember the language? It was to destroy, kill, and annihilate. Uh, all this destruction, it would happen on one day the 13th day of the 12th month. Judgment day, we said it was. Uh, it was going to be against all the Jews across the whole kingdom. Uh, that uh, edict went out to every, provinces, uh, the, every province. The couriers went out. It was issued in Susa. The city was left bewildered. Well, once again, we see that completely turned around here in chapter 8. Uh, verse 11, that language is the same. It's the language of to kill uh, to destroy, to annihilate. Once again, it would take place on that same day, the 13th day of the 12th month, except now it's not against the Jews. No, it's against all those who would attack the Jews. This was the edict that would go out. It goes out to all the provinces, uh, put up in Susa, except now the city isn't bewildered. No, the city is left in celebration. It's a complete turnaround. Of course, you see it in the reaction as well. Do you remember how Mordecai and God's people reacted to Haman's edict? Back in chapter 4, Mordecai was in sackcloth and ashes. He was shut out from the king's gate. He wasn't allowed to enter in. God's people across the whole kingdom, they were fasting, weeping, wailing. Well, fast forward now to chapter 8, verse 15. Mordecai is now dressed in royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. Gone are his sackcloth and ashes. No longer is he shut out from the king's gate. No, he comes out from the king's presence. God's people across the kingdom respond likewise. No longer are they fasting. Now they're feasting, verse 17. They're filled with happiness and joy, joy and gladness. It's a complete reversal. 
See, this is a masterpiece. What you see as you read through chapter 8 is a point-by-point point undoing of everything the enemy had plotted. It's as if a new power comes into force and bit by bit they undo every bad policy from the people who were there before. And maybe a new boss comes and takes charge. That fixes the situation by undoing every single initiative that the previous person had done. Uh, those of you who have kids will remember that when they're little kids, they, they undo all of your good progress of tidying the house. Bit by bit, you tidy one bit, that's good. You move to a different bit, and by the time you come back to the first bit, they've already undone your progress. Well, that's what we find here. This new edict completely turns around that former edict. It's a complete reversal. And so the result is a total turnaround. We come back to that verse we started with, the summary in chapter 9, verse 1. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. Uh, there's a real focus on the day here. It's repeated a couple of times. This day, the 13th day of the 12th month, this was the day that was etched into the calendars of every one of God's people. This is the day that lay on the horizon, that cast a shadow on all their other days. This is the day that would have filled them with dread as they looked forward to it. And yet when that day came, it wasn't a day of judgment. It became a day of salvation. It was a complete turnaround. God would rescue his people. And the shape of that rescue is reversal. Complete reversal. Uh, you see it kind of described in the verses that follow. Verse 2. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. I love that detail. Instead of God's people falling at the hand of their enemies. Their enemies couldn't even stand before the Jews. Uh, verse 3 continues, All the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, the kings and ministrators, helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces. He became more and more powerful. What a turnaround. Can you remember back to chapter 2? Mordecai urged Esther to stay quiet. They had to keep their head down out of fear of what might happen. Well, what kind of atmosphere is there here now? Recognition and fear of God's people. This is how one writer describes it. He summarizes it like this. The very reversal that played out personally between Mordecai and Haman. That's what we saw last week. Well, this now plays out more widely between the Jews and their enemies throughout the empire. It's a complete reversal. God brings reversal for his people. It starts with Mordecai, and then it extends to all of God's people. Now, one of the challenges, of course, as we read a passage like this, in some ways it's kind of across the Old Testament, is that we can sometimes find it hard to inhabit these verses. Now, we know the fact of what happens, uh, but what happens here seems so far removed from our own experience. Uh, perhaps in our relative safety, it kind of, it's hard to imagine how they might have felt. And yet, of course, we're not unfamiliar with the feeling of dread as we look forward into the future. That all sorts of things can fill us with worry and anxiety. Uh, we, look for, look, we look ahead to a doctor's appointment 
Uh, we look ahead to a difficult meeting at work, maybe a difficult family reunion. Perhaps we're waiting on a decision and a result to come out. And as we look ahead to that point, we can so often be filled with fear and dread. What's going to happen if this happens? What will we do if that happens? It can paralyze us. It can cast a shadow over our days. Well, friends, just think, as you look ahead to that day, the opposite of what we feared happens. We'll be filled with joy. We'll be filled with relief. We'll be filled with delight. And that's something of what God's people here experienced. I love the way it's put in this book. This book, uh, we gave it out to all the older kids in our church. It's called Bright Star, a version of the Esther story written for kids. And they picture this moment in wonderful detail. The Jews wept with joy and hugged one another at the news. They had been living in utter fear of each passing day since they first learned of Haman's edict. This was the word of rescue they'd been hoping for. God's continued protection of his people. See, friends, for God's people here, that day that came, that day that filled them with dread, that day that was etched into their calendars, it was no longer a day of judgment. It became a day of salvation. God rescued his people. And the shape of that rescue was reversal. It was a complete reversal. Now already, perhaps you can start to see some links to our experience as Christian believers. But before we jump to that, we need to try to understand how this reversal fits in with the Bible more broadly. Because as we look at this reversal, it's not just a complete reversal here in the book of Esther. It is also a specific reversal against the backdrop of what God does. See, this reversal that we see here, it it comes at a specific point in time, a particular point in history, a particular point in God's purposes in the world. And as we see God bringing this reversal, what we find is that he's bringing judgment on his enemies. And remember how Haman is presented in the book of Esther. He's the enemy. We're reminded of that right at the start of chapter 8, verse 1. Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Uh, Verse 4, he's described as Haman the Agagite. Uh, Verse 5 again, Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. See, you remember when we were first introduced to Haman, he's presented as the enemy against God's people. He's the Agagite, linked back to King Agag, the prominent king of the Amalekites, who were, of course, the historic enemy of God's people. That hostility reached all the way back to the Exodus. We see it described here in Deuteronomy 25. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. See, here were a people who set themselves up against God's people. They tried to destroy them. They set themselves up against God's purposes in the world. They set themselves up against God himself. And this hostility then, it's an age-old hostility. It continues through the centuries. It rears its head at different points. Under King Saul, for example. And again, it rears its head in the book of Esther in the figure of Haman. Haman is presented as the enemy against God's people. But not only Haman. No, also everyone who aligns themselves with Haman. You see, what was Haman's plan? His edict was to order everyone to destroy the Jews. It was an appeal to the masses. 
It was an order that went out to all the people for them to kill God's people. And so not only is Haman presented as an enemy, also all those who align themselves with him. Uh, just notice in Mordecai's new edict, his new decree, uh, what the instruction is actually given to God's people. See, verse 11, the permission here isn't just to go and kill anyone they wanted. There wasn't just a free-for-all to do whatever they liked in the world. No, it was to protect themselves. It was to arm them against those who would attack them, their enemies. We see the same pattern in the summary in verse 1 of chapter 9. They got the upper hand against who? Those who hated them. Uh, They uh, attacked those who were determined to destroy them, verse 2. See, God is protecting his people. And that means he brings judgment on their enemies. In some ways, this really is a playing out of God's promise to Abraham, all the way back in uh, Genesis chapter 12. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. See, what God is doing here is bringing judgment on his enemies. Now, whenever we consider God's judgment against his enemies, Uh, It can raise all sorts of challenging questions. It can be something difficult to consider. In fact, that's one of the reasons why we wanted to go through the book of Esther a little bit more slowly so that we'd have time to look at this rather than kind of skip past this. And if you would like to grapple more with these questions, we have uh, some books on our bookstore, actually. Um, A couple of these books here uh, that try to deal with some of these questions. Uh, They don't look at Esther in particular, but some of these questions uh, across the Old Testament and so if you'd like to grapple more with them, do check that out. But for now, what we, the key thing for us to see here is that what is happening in chapter 8 of Esther is that it is God bringing judgment against his enemies. God is bringing judgment against his enemies. Think of it this way. Uh, what's happening here isn't primarily horizontal. It's vertical. Uh, What's described here isn't sort of one faction just gaining the upper hand on another faction that they don't like. This isn't about uh, rival gangs warring against each other. Uh, This isn't about one clique in society getting an upper hand on a different part of society. Now, this is God bringing judgment against those who stand opposed to Him. In fact, we see a number of occasions in the Old Testament where this happens. Perhaps the prime example would be the conquest of Canaan, the promised land, where God brings judgment against his enemies there. And so what we have here in Esther is another specific instance of that judgment. Again, if you'd like to grapple more of these questions, I'd really recommend those books to you. And one of the things they point out is that actually this judgment that comes on God's enemies, well, God's people aren't immune to that. In fact, God's people themselves experience this judgment. You see, God's people, they weren't better than the nations around them. God even tells them I didn't, he didn't choose them because they were more righteous than others. In fact, as you read through their history, you see that they were no better than others. And so they ended up sitting under the same judgment that went on those who went before them. Uh, think of it this way. Why are we even looking at the book of Esther? God's people stuck in exile. See, the only reason they were there was because God's judgment came upon God's people. God's judgment comes out on all who stand opposed to him. Now, 
when we see that, it, I think it helps us grapple with some of the, the uncomfortable questions here. Is it just sort of one party against another party? But it actually also leaves us with an even more sobering reality. The reality that left to our own devices, all humanity stands under an edict of judgment. They're not an edict like Haman's edict, a devious edict of judgment. No, a righteous judgment from a holy God. No matter our background, no matter our culture, and no matter our standing in society, this reality is something that confronts all of us. Now, of course, in God's kindness, God hasn't brought the full weight of his judgment down yet. He's delayed it in order to rescue a people for himself. But the Bible is clear, that day is coming. That judgment is coming. And what we have here in Esther is a little foreshadowing of that. It's as if it's a little glimpse, a little picture of what that final judgment will be like on all those who stand opposed to God when Jesus returns in glory and might. Now, what does this mean for us? What, what, what do we take from this? Well, certainly one thing is it shows us this isn't for us to bring about now. Uh, what we see in this reversal, this judgment isn't for us to bring about now. Uh, this isn't license for us to go and get our own back on those we have personal grudges against, uh, those that we don't like, those that we're different to. It isn't even license for us to try to enact God's judgment against other people. Uh, we don't go around calling down fire from heaven upon those who aren't Christians. We don't go around threatening people because they're not believers in Christ. In fact, the New Testament confirms this. Uh, Luke chapter 9, when Jesus and his disciples encounter people who outright rejected them, they say this, when the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. We see the same principle in Romans 12, uh, citing Deuteronomy 32. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. In other words, what we have here, it is a one-off. It's a specific, a, a unique event. Uh, not a pattern of reversal that we live out day to day now. Uh, in some ways, we've seen this all the way through the book of Esther. It's not a little textbook, a manual, where we follow each thing as we see it here. Uh, no, it's a book that shows us God at work. It shows us how God rescues his people. He rescues them here through this specific reversal. So then what, what do we do with this? Uh, what do we take away from this? Well, what we see here is still relevant. Because even though it isn't a model to replicate in our day-to-day -day life now, even though it isn't a model to replicate, it is a picture of what we're to anticipate. Even if it isn't giving us instruction on what we're to do now, it shows us something of what God will do. You see, this complete reversal, it is a specific reversal, but it points us to, it lifts our gaze to, a future reversal. Because the day is coming when God will bring reversal for all his people. See, this passage here, it comes with a real challenge as it it shows us, it points us to how there is a judgment coming, how all of us stand under that judgment. And yet at the same time, there is real hope. 
because that day of judgment for all who cling to Christ, that day of judgment will in fact be a day of salvation. There is a reversal that God's people can look forward to. In fact, it is a reversal that all who come to Jesus Christ can look forward to. And we get a wonderful little picture of it, actually, here in our passage. I wonder if you noticed how much time has passed between the start of chapter 8 and the start of chapter 9. See, this edict was written, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 9, on the 23rd day of the third month. When does this reversal happen? It happens on the 13th day of the 12th month. There's this nine-month gap. And in that time, people could change sides. In that time, both of these edicts were published. And the people of Persia could decide which one they would listen to, which one they would respond to. And in fact, as we see how it pans out, many people change sides. Chapter 8, verse 17. Many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. Uh, we see it again in chapter 9, verse 3. Uh, we saw it earlier. Those in charge ended up helping the Jews, joining them on their side. Now, we don't know exactly what it means that they changed sides here. And yet, at the very least, they changed their affinities. They wanted to be identified with God's people, not against God's people. Again, actually, this really plays out God's promises. Back there, uh, this plays out God's promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12. See, the rest of the verse goes like this. I will bless those who bless you and curse whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Friends, this future reversal is open to all who come to Jesus Christ. No matter your background, no matter your culture, no matter your standing in society. See, friends, the edict of judgment that we stand under is not like Haman's edict. See, under that edict, there was no way out. Oh, friends, under God's edict of judgment, there is a way out because God himself has made a way. See, the same Jesus Christ who will return in glory and might well, he came first in humility and meekness. Friends, when Jesus Christ came, he didn't come to enact judgment on the world. No, he came to stand under judgment for the world. When he came, he didn't put everyone under the, every one of his enemies under the sword of judgment. He put himself under the sword of judgment. Friends, when Jesus Christ died, he sat under the full weight of God's wrath so that all who put their faith and trust in Him can look forward to this day with confidence, with assurance that that day will not for them be a day of judgment. Friends, that coming day will be the day of salvation, a reversal, a future reversal. And so as we come to a close, friends, if you're not a Christian believer here, Will you come to Christ? It's not a case of just knowing about Him or knowing other Christians or even, even having a Christian background. 
It's about turning to Him in your heart of hearts, aligning yourself with Him in your life, putting your faith and trust in Him. Friends, will you come to Christ? If you are a Christian believer here, friends, will you cling to Christ with everything that you have? Will you remember that Christ is your only hope in life and death? Friends, you look forward not uh, you look forward with assurance and confidence, not because of your background, your ability, your standing in society. Now our anthem isn't how great are we. Now our anthem is the Lord is my salvation. Will you cling to Christ? And friends, as we cling to Him, will we call others to Him as well? We were thinking about what we do with this passage. Where do we go from here? Well, friends, we said... We don't go about our lives calling down fire from heaven on those who aren't Christians. No, that's not what we do. No, we go about our lives calling others to come to Jesus. Because we know that God will bring reversal for all his people. And Jesus Christ has already sat under the full weight of God's judgment for the sake of all who will come to him. And so friends, will we go out and call others to Christ today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you that as we open up your word, you speak to us. You speak to us even this morning. And Father, we thank you that even though in your word there are many challenging things, that we're confronted with really challenging realities, and yet we know that there is wonderful hope gospel hope for all who would come to Jesus Christ. And so we pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would enable us today to cling afresh to him and embolden us to go and call others to him. And we pray this in his name. Amen.